Welcome to DIA Today, Democracy in America Today. I'm Matt Parks alongside Dave Corbin. Glad to have you with us as we explore the ideas behind today's headlines. How's your week been, Dave? It's been great. Just another week in in Texas. We had a great friend from New York City come down and spend the week with us, Regina Gilligan, who's as you can imagine, an Irish woman is uh, always uh, fun to be with, and uh, we had many a good time. But uh, on a note of sadness, a uh, former friend uh, passed away, uh, a man named Neil Young from my hometown of Laconia, New Hampshire. You probably remember Neil, Matt. I think we were on his show on multiple occasions in yeah. the mid to late 90s uh, during my short uh, and uh, unsuccessful political career. But um, Not entirely unsuccessful. One win and one loss, so I, I batted 500. But uh, yeah, Neil was just uh, just a great a great soul. Uh, really, he lived in Laconia his whole life. He was a, a city council person for three terms. That he represented Laconia in the state legislature uh, for uh, two terms. Uh, so very active uh, politically. Uh, he was my first basketball coach uh, for DSC Courier and. Uh, that year that I averaged 5.9 points per game. Um, he's the reason why. He's the reason why. Now he, uh, he probably put me out there uh, too much, but he had, had been a great family friend. And uh, it's kind of funny when you know someone when you're uh, younger and a child and then you become an adult and they kind of come across your name and they're like, oh, I didn't know you were involved in politics. So it was almost a new uh, relationship that was formed at that time. But um, he had a, a, a Beautiful wife, just a great family, um, uh, three children, uh, Dean, uh, Stephanie, and Chris, and, and uh, was just a, a fixture in the Laconia um, circle, uh, the greater Lakes Region circle. And uh, on on our front, uh, very much an inspiration. He had a, a radio show that lasted, I think, for uh, 24 years. He uh, penned a column. Uh, for for 25 years for the Weir's time. So you think we're on episode eight, he probably did in the thousands. So um, he'll be missed. And, um, and we just uh, think of his family this week. So I want to dedicate today's show to him. Yeah, uh, that's great. Yeah, I know I enjoyed the conversations we had with him and certainly know he had a, a great influence on your life and a lot of people in that lakes region. But we've been out at the lake uh, the last week. My parents' uh, cabin enjoyed this time a lot. Uh, we've got a few days left to wrap up our visit, but it's been it's been really relaxing. You know, a nice break from some of the intensity of the last three and a half months in New York. So I think it's been good for all of us. Uh, my parents both got up on skis, water skis, and uh, you know they're in their mid seventies, but doing great. I'm very proud of them, and they you know, they they've got it um, just as well as they did twenty five years ago. So. That's awesome. We've had, a, we've had a great time with them and, and looking forward to the rest of the visit. Well, last time we looked at the meeting of the 4th of July, and uh, we always record our episodes on Friday, which meant we were recording on July 3rd. And as it turned out, two events from that same day dominated the political discussion for the last week. So the first of those, uh, the most directly political, was the speech that President Trump gave at Mount Rushmore that in typical Trump style, celebrated American history and ideals. Uh, but the second one, which was more of a cultural event, but had political implications as well, as we'll talk about as we move along, was the release of the Broadway musical Hamilton for streaming by Disney on their new streaming service, 
Disney Plus. So we're going to try to tie those two things together this week with a broader com- conversation on patriotism and statesmanship. So to get started, let's turn to our headlines. And we'll begin with that speech and the response that it generated. And so I'm just going to give a little bit of flavor of the speech. Uh, he opened the substance of his remarks with these words. Today, we pay tribute to the exceptional lives and extraordinary legacies of George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, Abraham Lincoln, and Teddy Roosevelt. I am here as your president to proclaim before the country and before the world, this monument will never be desecrated. These heroes will never be defaced. Their legacy will never, ever be destroyed. Their achievements will never be forgotten. And Mount Rushmore will stand forever as an eternal tribute to our forefathers and to our freedom. We gather tonight to herald the most important day in the history of nations, July 4th, 1776. At those words, every American heart should swell with pride. Every American family should cheer with delight. And every American patriot should be filled with joy. Because each of you lives in the most magnificent country in the history of the world, and it will soon be greater than ever before. Our founders launched not only a revolution in government, but a revolution in the pursuit of justice, equality, liberty, and prosperity. No nation has done more to advance the human condition than the United States of America. And no people have done more to promote human progress than the citizens of our great nation. It was all made possible by the courage of 56 patriots who gathered in Philadelphia 244 years ago and signed the Declaration of Independence. They enshrined the divine truth that changed the world forever when they said, all men are created equal. These immortal words set in motion the unstoppable march of freedom. Our founders boldly declared that we are all endowed with the same divine rights given to us by our creator in heaven. And that which God has given us, we will allow no one ever to take away, ever. Now, this introduction was basically an outline of the rest of the speech, uh, wherein he cataloged the individual achievements of Washington, Jefferson, Lincoln, and Teddy Roosevelt, and then spoke more generally of the achievements of a wide range of Americans and the virtues of American ideals. And along the way, he kept up his critique of the radical left and cancel culture, arguing that, quote, tearing down Washington and Jefferson would also tear down quote, the principles that propelled the abolition of slavery in America and ultimately around the world, ending an evil institution that had plagued humanity for thousands and thousands of years. Our opponents would tear apart the very documents that Martin Luther King used to express his dream and the ideas that were the foundation of the righteous movement for civil rights. They would tear down the beliefs, culture, and identity that have made America the most vibrant and tolerant society in the history of the earth. I know you watched the speech, I think, Friday night, and then again on Saturday. What did you make of it, Dave? Well, I thought there was a lot to like and and even love about the speech. Uh, Certainly, as you mentioned, he gave us clear lines of demarcation uh, between uh, those who would uh, preserve the regime and and understand it or try to understand it on its original basis uh, and those who would move forward and, and want to change um, and and leave perhaps that that regime behind however as is always the case uh, with president trump i think he could have done better uh, had he been able to distinguish between those individuals who 30 40 years ago might very well have embraced in public the regime and who have departed from their embrace in the regime and had welcomed back, say, that 60s style, old fashioned liberal 
uh, pointing out the difference between the more radical leftist mob that I think in many ways controls the Democratic Party today and the well-meaning uh, liberal uh, of old, who um, I think would be a great ally. Uh, so, uh, the, he, as you've mentioned on multiple occasions, um, he's great at landing punch, uh, but we need a president not only who can throw a punch, but who can also make peace. Uh, and and I think, uh, we, as you could probably see in the responses, I'm sure you have some of those headlines too, uh, there was no um, embrace of the speech at all, which would have been predicted as, as well. Yeah, so let's turn it to that direction and just a little sample on the left and on the right. You know, what's, what's striking is not that there's differences of opinion on a Trump speech or anything else that President Trump does. We've kind of gotten used to that. And for that matter, our politics predating President Trump has been sharply divided for some time. But what's, I think, unusual here is the degree to which people really heard or thought they heard very different speeches, that at least some on the left were hearing things that Trump didn't actually say, although they may have understood his speech in a broader context of other remarks or tweets or read what they thought were themes between the lines. Here's uh, Zishan Alim at Vox. He writes, Trump's descriptions of the rise of an extremist left, which were often exaggerated or false in their characterizations, are inflammatory in part because they rely on a narrow, nationalistic and racialized definition of our values that amounts to a sweeping rejection of the idea that America's history of slavery and white supremacy should be questioned. And in framing the debate over the monuments this way, the president revived the racialized nostalgia politics that animated his 2016 strategy for mobilizing Republican voters. Now, what's interesting is we just read this selection from the speech where he, he lauds the principle of human equality, he lauds the civil rights movement, calls it a righteous movement, uh, and yet here the assumption is that undergirding all this is an unwillingness to reckon with America's history of slavery and white supremacy. Senator Tammy Duckworth, who appears to be on the short list of candidates for the Democratic vice presidential nomination, responded to the speech by criticizing President Trump for not focusing on COVID-19 or the Russian payment of bounties to the Taliban for killing American troops. And instead, she said, he spent all his time talking about dead traitors. Now, that particular characterization received quite a bit of resistance, particularly on the right. And so Charles C.W. Cook, uh, who is not certainly a Trump apologist, uh, nevertheless defended Trump's speech and responded to Duckworth and others at National Review, writing, at Mount Rushmore, Trump made a speech about the revolution, not about the Confederacy. I know this because I can read. Declaration of Independence appears in this speech three times. Revolution and Founders appear four times each. 1776 appears five times. The phrase, all men are created equal, is singled out as a set of immortal words that set in motion the unstoppable march of freedom. By contrast, Confederacy isn't there at all, nor are Stevens, Davis, Lee, or Forrest. And the sections on the Civil War are vehicles for the adulation of Abraham Lincoln, and the Emancipation Proclamation. This, he argues in the previous paragraph, is exactly what we should want American presidents to say. A defense of the American Revolution, which in contrast to the Confederacy, was, according to Cook, an unparalleled leap forward, the consequences of which have been almost entirely salutary, not only for America, but for the world. And then he concludes the piece, 
if the truth matters, it matters all the time, including when reporting on Donald Trump. That Trump lies himself does not change this. That Trump is often incoherent does not change this. That Trump has said some awful things over the past five years does not change this. This was not a speech about Confederate monuments. It was not a speech about traitors. And it was not a speech that equivocated on the question of racial equality. Senator Duckworth is lying, and the press is helping her to do it. Do they think we're incapable of reading? Now, Roger Kimball, who's a more reliable defender of President Trump, writing at American Greatness, which is also a more reliable defender of President Trump, had broader praise for the speech, uh, concluding that historians will say that last night's speech was the moment that Donald Trump won re-election. And he praised the speech for its defense of American principles and patriots, but especially for its strong rebuke of cancel culture. Trump said it should have absolutely no place in the United States of America. And then Kimball responding, and here is where his speech took a steely seriousness. This attack on our liberty must be stopped, he said, and it will be stopped. In short, the president has promised to cancel, cancel culture. Is that a contradiction, a violation of the spirit of tolerance he has promised to uphold? No, says Kimball. The enemies of civilization routinely use and abuse its freedoms in order to destroy it. Candid men understand this and act to prevent it. As G.K. Chesterton put it, there is a thought that stops thought. That is the only thought that ought to be stopped. What do you make of all this, Dave? I agree with Kimball completely on this point, and I think that the cancel culture needs to be canceled. Uh, You'd mentioned before uh, Aleem at Vox uh, writing that his description of the rise in extremist left, left, excuse me, was inflammatory. I think it's spot on. I think it's exactly what I've seen in the academy. I think it's exactly what I've seen among uh, those individuals um, who want to move forward at any cost. And it it kind of, it goes to show you that uh, this, there's this dichotomy in, in the politics of any regime. Uh, Leo Strauss once said that uh, all politics is about preservation or change. One of the unique things about the American Republic is it doesn't have to be an either or of preservation or change. Certainly, we can look back and want to conserve the Declaration of Independence. We can want to conserve those moments and those ideas that are exemplary of, of who we are. But we, we celebrate those ideas as a guidepost to the future, uh, to progress, uh, to change uh, that realizes the aspiration of the hope that was there in the first place. But for some on the left, it has to be absolute change. And any uh, adherence, uh, any embrace of the preservation of the past, uh, is, it makes you, it uh, labels you uh, as an enemy. And I think it's an incredibly dangerous politics. It is the, the politics of the cancel culture. It's the politics of many on the left right now, and I do believe that it needs to be stopped because if it's, if it's not, it's going to be civil war in this country. Well, that's a great point as we turn our attention to Hamilton. Five years ago, Hamilton took Broadway by storm. You haven't been able to get a ticket for anything less than probably your firstborn child since. And so now a broader audience, of course, is able to watch at least the stage version of Hamilton. What's really striking as we look at some of the reviews of Hamilton is is how far things have moved in the five years since the play was originally released. So here's one journalist commenting on Hamilton and how it really doesn't quite fit with the present moment. This is Ed Morales writing at CNN. He says that to reassess Hamilton now is to note a crucial incompatibility with our current moment. Its hero and its message are essentially ambivalent 
while today's politics around America's racial sins requires taking a strong stance. Indeed, Hamilton is a minefield of mixed messages. Is our takeaway about its main character that he is a revolutionary hero or a flawed philanderer? Is its strategy of non-traditional casting a triumph that allows people of color to rise up? Or are they undermined by the irony of how their embodiment as founding fathers ignores the fact that most of the characters they play were slave owners? He concludes, in the context of a movement that has clearly identified systemic racism and lethal policing for abolishing rather than reforming, Hamilton is quaint and non-committal. Hamill film has arrived at a moment when America is not satisfied with ambivalence or compromise, but yearning for real and necessary change. Now, a second piece, this by Kyle Smith, who's the critic at large for National Review, begins by noting the same incongruity between the message of Hamilton and the present moment, but he draws a rather different conclusion. His last paragraph, Hamilton wasn't supposed to appear on TV at all this year. Disney having spent $70 million, it hoped to earn back at the box office in a 2021 theatrical release. But when most of the live productions of the show had to be halted this spring, Lin-Manuel Miranda and Disney agreed that it would make a fine Independence Day gift to America. I'm glad they did. In the less than two months since that decision was announced, America's self-image took a turn for the worse. But now the show has gained even more purpose as a stirring rebuke to a season of mindless, debauched, and wicked iconoclasm. May Hamilton's love for the founding and the men who made it help steer America away from the sickening disinformation of those who despise it. Really striking how much could happen between that announcement two months ago and the moment when the film is actually released. Well, you and I have both taught uh, American political thought and practice. Uh, I'm now at Providence in California and, and at the King's College in New York City. And, and I remember uh, Hamilton was popular, not simply because Eliza Oman, now Eliza Cunningham, uh, ended up being on the cast, but because it did just that. It, it bridged what oftentimes was an antiquarian past with a hip-hop present. It was a bridge of the things they were studying in their class uh, and their interest uh, in the aspirations of people around them. Uh, Kyle Smith notes here, right, that there, there can be a bridge between preserving something and change. But Ed Morales doesn't want that bridge to be there. This is exactly what I was saying 10 minutes ago. Can we bridge preservation or change, or does it have to be one way or another? And if it's all about preserving the past and nostalgia without any embrace of a good change, then that's, that's detrimental to the American Republic. But so is the, the opposite, which I think is what we're seeing on the left today. Yeah, we, we watched Hamilton with our, with our whole family, actually, this, this last week. I wasn't sure about that. I've listened to the album and the language is a little bit salty uh, for my taste, certainly with four relatively young children. But I'd heard from a colleague at King's that they'd cleaned a little bit of that up and that you didn't really notice it anyway as you, the songs moved at a pretty good pace, which is certainly true. So, so we, we listened to it. The kids really enjoyed it and I think got something of the story. You know, I think what it does very, very well captures the nuance of his ambition. That he's ambitious is obvious. No one would miss that about him. No one would miss that by watching the play. But I think the play does a great job of, of, of showing the nature of that ambition in the way that it handles the central scandal of his life, which has to do with an adulterous affair that he had, and then admits to publicly 
you, you couldn't imagine the kind of detail that he was willing to share in order to demonstrate that he had not violated the public trust, that he had violated his vows to his wife and acknowledged that to be a terrible thing. But it was important to him that the American public know that he hadn't been unfaithful to them as Secretary of Treasury, that his ambition for fame and his desire to be famous for having acted for the common good really led, as, as the play shows, to this very painful public airing of the challenges of his marriage. And, and you know, you see very well depicted how that hurt his wife. And yet his wife, in this extraordinary act of forgiveness, extends just that to her unfaithful husband and then lives on 50 years after his death as, as a guardian and protector of that fame that he justly had earned for his contribution to the American regime. To want recognition is a very human thing. To want fame, as Hamilton would note himself, is a, is a very human thing. It can be a noble passion. And I think it's one that uh, ambition rightly understood can improve political communities. Ambition wrongly understood or practiced can undermine them or kill them. Uh, and Hamilton certainly is a, uh, an example of the former. Right, which is a great point of transition for us as we turn to our required reading. Um, what do you have for us this week, Professor Corbin? Well, I wanted to start out by requiring that we all take a look at two contemporary pieces on Donald Trump, uh, one written by Professor Harvey Mansfield of uh, Harvard, uh, titled The Vulgar Manliness of Donald Trump. It was written a couple of years back. And, and, and one more recent piece uh, written by Professor Carson Holloway, uh, titled The Politics of Spiritedness. I want to start there with, with those philosophic examinations of Donald Trump and, and human nature. And then I want to move to uh, Plutarch's Lives and take a look at some characters from Plutarch's Lives. So that's, that's what I have uh, for us today uh, in this kind of uh, overall discussion of ambition and leadership and patriotism and all the rest. One important thing to note uh, whenever you read anything of uh, Professor Mansfield is uh, his scholarship on uh, Machiavelli uh, and his scholarship on Tocqueville is probably the best scholarship of the last uh, 10 or 15, 20 uh, years. So when I, I read the piece, I went back and looked through Democracy in America and tried to find how Tocqueville employs the term vulgar in his assessment of Democracy in America. Of course, a lot of what he's writing in Democracy in America is about the transition from an arist aristocratic world to a democratic world, uh, there is much hope to be had in that transition, but there are also dangers lurking in the transition from aristocracy to democracy. So at the beginning, his first um, Democracy in America published in 1835, he talks about the vulgarity of American journalists. I'm sorry to all our journalist friends out there. He also talks about the vulgarity uh, of the House of Representatives uh, and of uh, public officers uh, in general. He talks about the vulgar use of language, uh, how many an American Democrat uses words indiscriminately. Uh, they use uh, that language purposefully to move sentiment rather than reason. But in the second Democracy in America, published five years later, uh, vulgarity takes on a more serious nature or tone. Uh, moving forward to the end of uh, the uh, Democracy in America, Volume 2, uh, that famous chapter on democratic despotism, he says that vulgar ambition is deadly uh, because it leads to a soulless type of leadership, but also a soulless political community. 
that's not simply that vulgar ambition produces a love of well-being, uh, but it erases the prospect uh, for a nobility, an embrace of something greater. And this certainly is central to uh, Mansfield's understanding of President Trump in this piece. He calls President Trump um, uh, an ancient demagogue and, and begins to try to understand, well, what, you know, why is it that Donald Trump plays the part of demagogue? And a lot of commentators on President Trump say he plays the part of demagogue because he's Machiavellian. But of course, Mansfield, knowing Machiavelli well, says that Donald Trump is anything but a Machiavellian ruler. Uh, he's not someone who is shrewd. Uh, his ambition, his desire for recognition is more a demand for universal love. Mansfield writes, his vulgar manliness wants to mask his obvious yearning for indiscriminate love. Mansfield argues that uh, President Trump is very dependent upon those who love him. He's not an independent Machiavellian ruler. He's very, tie, very much tied uh, to the rule. So this made me think as a professor of political philosophy of that famous passage in, in Machiavelli's Prince as to whether it's better uh, to be feared uh, than loved. And of course, Machiavelli responds famously, and he doesn't say better, but this is kind of interesting. He says, it's much safer uh, to be feared than love. Not better, but it's much safer to be feared than love because love is preserved by the link of obligation, which owing to the baseness of men is broken at every opportunity for their advantage. So his Machiavelli's suggestion is uh, better to work uh, from the standpoint or the first standpoint of a fear than a desire for love. Fear used well, even if you don't acquire love, if you can escape hatred, might work toward your benefit. So I thought about this idea of being feared and being loved and being hated and applying that to the case of, of President Trump. I don't think that President Trump is after being feared. I agree with Professor Mansfield that President Trump very much wants to be loved. But what's interesting about President Trump is he's willing to be hated to be loved that much more. So he's not worried about being hated. In fact, the more hatred that he can get from his enemies, his political enemies, the more love he seems to acquire from his fans or his friends. And that's an interesting spin on Machiavelli. And so the, the Mansfield accounting of uh, President Trump's uh, personality, his orientation relative to human nature, is he's very much moved by passion. Carson Holloway, on the other hand, in The Politics of Spiritedness, celebrates thumos, the thumos that is present within President Trump's soul, uh, arguing that it's just that spiritedness that is needed in our age uh, to revive our politics. Uh, thumos is not a bad thing. It's a thing when well applied that can lead to the betterment uh, of a political community. So um, here, note that the difference between Mansfield's accounting of President Trump's character and, and the one given to us by Holloway is Mansfield focuses on the passionate part of President Trump's soul, whereas Holloway celebrates a President Trump because of that spirited part uh, of his soul, that spirited part that's needed in any uh, political community uh, if it's to operate well. But what do you make of these two assessments given to us uh, by these required readings? I think the thing that always strikes me about Donald Trump, which, which maybe tracks well with Mansfield's assessment, 
is, is this need that he has to show his manliness. And there's, there's something insecure about President Trump that seems to come across in many of these speeches and many of the Twitter battles he gets into. And I mean, even that speech that I quoted from, I think it, it captured well this patriotism that Holloway is talking about in the politics of spiritedness, this, this right and good desire to protect one's own and to guard that which is good, especially within one's own, one's own nation, one's own people. But there's also this edge to it, as he says, this will not happen. These monuments will not be defaced. There's a kind of pride that seems to overcompensate for weakness there. You know, you, you, your presidency might be over in six months. What are you going to do about Mount Rushmore then? Uh, and, and even if you get four years in six months, there's a lot of presidencies to follow, Lord willing, and you're not going to be able to stop people from defacing monuments. If you can do it now, you can't do it then. So there, there's something that's an overemphasis on this manliness, this power that always seems to strike me in, in the speeches and the manners of President Trump. Well, Professor Mansfield says just that, 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 uh, that President Trump is vulnerable. He is insecure. But part of the secret uh, to his success is in attacking political correctness that has made many Americans vulnerable. It has made, the cancel culture has made many Americans vulnerable. Uh, the attack made on American life has made the livelihood of, of many Americans vulnerable. He, he, he seems to work off of that vulnerability. Uh, and his spiritedness is meant to be offensive because the more that he can show himself willing to be the defender of the vulnerable, the more love he's going to get uh, from those vulnerable. So they're not deplorables, as, as one presidential candidate put it. They're vulnerables. Uh, and, and he'll continue to, to kind of operate uh, along these uh, lines. So anyway, that, I just thought it was an interesting assessment uh, of, uh, of President Trump. And, and I think that um, it kind of, it, it makes you wonder, right, that um, in neither one of these assessments, however, points to what uh, earlier American leaders would want uh, out of the republic, which is for leaders to refine and enlarge uh, the public opinion. Perhaps we're beyond that. Hopefully not. That's kind of what we're trying to attempt in our classroom and, and here. Uh, but anyway, I just I, I thought that was interesting. And, and then the second thing that I wanted to assign um, real quickly are just some selections uh, from, from Plutarch's Lives. I imagine some of our listeners who are more familiar with Plutarch's Lives than, than me might point to a character from history, um, a leader from history, Greek or Roman history, who may be a, a more accurate um, representation of President Trump. But on first sight, I chose three uh, individuals from uh, from Plutarch's Parallel Lives, uh, who I thought might fit the bill as a Trumpian character from the past. Uh, the first is Coriolanus uh, from uh, the Roman Republic. The second is the Athenian democratic leader after Pericles named Cleon. Uh, and then thirdly, another uh, post-Periclean Athenian leader named Alcibiades. Uh, so Coriolanus, uh, uh, kind of living within the time of the early Roman Republic, Cleon and Alcibiades uh, during the Peloponnesian War. Uh, so what does uh, Plutarch have to tell us about each of these characters? Well, let me start with his assessment of Coriolanus. He says of Coriolanus, even though he was born uh, losing his father young, which would otherwise have proven bad for, for most young men, 
this did not prevent him from becoming a worthy and excellent man. So Coriolanus had it rough as a young man, but he still became a worthy and excellent man. Yet on the other hand, this same Coriolanus bore witness for those who hold that a generous and noble nature, if it lacked discipline, is apt to produce much that is worthless along with its better fruits, like a rich soil deprived of the husbandman's culture. For while the force and vigor of his intelligence, which knew no limitations, led him into great undertakings, he was a man of thumos, and such as were productive of the highest results. Still, on the other hand, since he indulged a vehement temper and displayed an unswerving pertinacity, it made him a difficult and unsuitable associate for others. They indeed look with admiration upon his insensibility to pleasures, toils, and mercenary gains, to which they gave the names of self-control, fortitude, and justice. But in their intercourse with him as a fellow citizen, they were offended by it as ungracious, burdensome, and arrogant. Even in those days when Rome uh, used for virtue a definition that was valor. So Coriolanus, this Roman Republican leader, a very spirited but unable to win over uh, the Roman people. What about Cleon, who never has given a, a particular life of his own by Plutarch, but is mentioned uh, generously uh, after uh, in his discussion of, of other leaders of the time? Plutarch says this uh, on Cleon, uh, first Athenian leader. Other leaders did great mischief to the city by suffering the cession of so much reputation power to Cleon, who now assumed such lofty airs and allowed himself in such intolerable audacity as led to many unfortunate results, a sufficient part of which fell to his own share. Amongst other things, Cleon destroyed all the decorum of public speaking. He was the first who ever broke out into exclamations, flung open his dress, smote his thigh, and ran up and down whilst he was speaking, things which soon after introduced amongst those who managed the affairs of the state, such license and contempt of decency as brought all into confusion. And he points out, already too, Alcibiades was beginning to show his strength at Athens, a popular leader, not indeed as utterly violent as Cleon, but as the land of Egypt, as said in the land of Egypt, though the richness of the soil is said great plenty to produce, both wholesome herbs and drugs of deadly juice. So Cleon uh, living and leading at a time where his outrageous behavior produces detriment to the Athenian democracy. So finally, and thirdly, what does Plutarch tell us about a third character, this Alcibiades who comes along near the end of Cleon's rule? On Alcibiades, he says, he says the following, but of all the statecraft and eloquence and lofty purpose and cleverness was attended with a great luxuriousness of life. He had a golden shield made for himself, bearing no ancestral device but on Eros armed with a thunderbolt. The reputable men of the city looked on all these things with loathing and indignation and feared his contemptuous and lawless spirit. But at the end of the day, Alcibiades, um, because he wants to be so loved uh, by the people, uh, kind of ruins his, his reputation. So you know, where do we go uh, from this? And, and, and you know, what would you make of these three characters? I know that you've read at time, one time or another uh, Plutarch li Plutarch's Lives, and you've read on um, Coriolanus and Cleon and Alcibiades. Of the three and those descriptions that I just gave, which of the three, Matt, do you think 
is most representative of the behavior of the character that you see in our current president, President Trump? Probably combine a little bit of, of what you said about Coriolanus and some of what you said about Cleon. So the go by the idea of vulgarity, uh, Cleon's willingness to play to the crowd in ways that broke conventions of Athens and influenced the public square for the worst in that regard certainly rings true of, of some of what President Trump does in public, certainly his Twitter account. But then also this challenge of, of having the good things that you do undercut by the bad qualities of character that people are able to focus on and, and be distracted in some ways by so that you don't really get credit for, for the good things that you do. Like, yeah, I, I certainly see a lot of Cleon in, in President Trump and, and some of that spiritedness in, in Coriolanus. But I, I think, too, that uh, there's something about Alcibiades uh, that, that is seen in perhaps the relationship between President Trump and his followers. Uh, Aristophanes, uh, in Plutarch's lives, um, Plutarch quotes Aristophanes, as saying uh, of the Athenian um, people and, and Alcibiades, that the Athenian people yearn for him and hate him too, but want him back. And there's this little kind of give and take, kind of yearning for that type of stuff and hating it too, but wanting him back. And then follows it up with another metaphor uh, from Aristophanes. A lion is not to be reared within the state, but once you've reared him up, consult his every mood. <laughs> I think that's, that's pretty, pretty fitting um, as well. But I, I think in, in, in my overall assessment of, of these three uh, characters uh, and President Trump, I, I, I would agree. I think President Trump is, is definitely more Cleon than either Coriolanus or Alcibiades. But with regard to the attributes of the latter two men, I, I think he's more likely to take on the person of Coriolanus and his dealings with his enemies. Uh, and more like Alcibiades in the dealings with his fans. And so he, I think in many ways he proves correct, uh, Professor Holloway, in my own embrace of, of his spiritedness, rightly directed against political correctness. But ultimately he proves correct, I think, Professor Mansfield's conclusion that his manly and vulgar pursuit for attention, while refreshing, degrades rather than refines and enlarges American public discourse. But I'm sure and note me here, <laughs> I'm sure down the road we'll also have the opportunity to discuss what I think is the greater of the two evils in our day and coming this November election, correct? We will have opportunity to revisit that, I believe, yes. Lord Excellent. willing, we have a number of weeks between now and November. Thank you. I just want to add one quick additional reading, supplementary reading, not required, but certainly encourage you. This is William Allen uh, writing on George Washington and self-government. William Allen, great scholar of Washington and the Federalists, someone we both uh, you know have, have long admired, uh, both personally and professionally, know him a little bit. So he's writing this piece at Real Clear Public Affairs as they're doing a 1776 project I think in response to the 1619 project, but, but here's his assessment of Washington's understanding of self-government. So he says, Washington summoned from the people, not a passive submission to the decisions of office holders, 
but an active acceptance of representatives as necessary vehicles to enable the completest exercise of liberty. His statesmanship envisioned exercising restraint, self-control, with respect to political projects or aspirations, privileging the exertions of citizens themselves above the exertions of government. In this sense, republicanism means conducting governance in such a manner as not to intrude upon the people's own self-governing conduct. This profound insight has been all but forgotten. And as I, I read that piece, that really struck me, this view of government leaders in a republic as bringing out in the people self-government. And he talks about there being this education type role for leaders in the ways of self-government. And he contrasts that at the end of the piece with this nurse-like role, an officious nurse who's always got new instructions for you, always got something to do. And I think he probably has in mind some of the elements of the progressive administrative state. But I also think that there's this kind of boastful protector persona that we find in President Trump that can be equally problematic from the standpoint of self-government, that we lose our our self-respect really either way. If you need a nurse and you're constantly under care, you lose your self-respect as a person who's capable of making everyday decisions, right? This is why we laugh about uh, former Mayor Bloomberg's desire to ban sugary sodas in New York City. We can't make decisions about our soda size, right? What What does it say about your conception of who we are as, as citizens, as self-governing citizens that we can't make a decision about our soda size. But, but also, while there may be a need for protection, and certainly government has a role in obvious ways in protecting the people from dangers, an overemphasis on that tends to minimize the agency of people and to, to make us individuals who are, who are fearful and cowering, looking for that protector who's able to save us from the late, latest danger, whether that's foreign or domestic. And so I think there's a good lesson here for President Trump in trying to draw out of the people the resources of self-government that they have within them, not only within them as individuals, but within the American tradition that, that he wants to laud and that he only partly seems to exemplify. Yeah, I just remember those obnoxious signs in the New York City subway. If you see something, say something. <laughs> Don't do anything. Right. Go get an official because that's the official in New York City is going to be the one who, who solves the problem. But he- heaven forbid as a human actor that you do something uh, positive. Right. The, that's the American way uh, defined. <laughs> well, well, you got to assign a supplementary reading. So real quickly, I, 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 when you mentioned Washington, uh, we've, I think we've referenced this speech before, but in Lincoln's Lyceum Address, he mentions Washington too at the end, right? The this, this speech is about the perpetuation of our institutions. How will we survive as a country? And he says that that memory of the past, that, that the warrior, the actor in the Revolutionary War had that, 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 that lent itself to the independence, that had disappeared you know, just 50 years later after the war, right? Because you might have the memory of acting in the war, but when that person dies, how are you going to take up the role of defender of the American institutions? And, and, and Lincoln says the following, the way that we can is by relying on the solid quarry of sober reason. The passion of, of experiencing a war and fighting in it has helped us, but can do so no more. 
In the future, that passion might be or might become our enemy. But reason, cold, calculating, unimpassioned reason must furnish all the materials for our future support and defense. Let those materials be molded into general intelligence, sound morality, and in particular, a reverence for the Constitution and laws. Those are the things that we need right now. General intelligence, sound morality, a reverence for the Constitution and laws. Those are being lost. So give a great Mount Rushmore speech, but let's talk about that sound morality. Let's talk about what general intelligence means. What, what, let's talk about what, mean, what it means to be a common sense actor. And let's exemplify that. Exactly. Uh, let's, let's, let's be that tutor that Alan was talking about in his piece. Exactly. And, and if we can do that, right, then he says here, and it's kind of interesting given the recent debate over monuments, that Washington during his long sleep will not have to worry about a hostile foot passing over or desecrating his resting place. But what he's saying here is very important that we best secure that which is special about our regime when we understand it fully and we act upon that understanding. We don't want or shouldn't want to have a nanny state, or we shouldn't want to have a defender uh, who secures for us that which we can secure for ourselves. We need leaders who are refining, enlarging public opinion, and depending upon us to be independent people so that we can keep the republic that we have. We're now going to open the grade book as we have some fun each week. This week, we're going to look at the world of sports, where in the last few days, both the Washington Redskins and the Cleveland Indians have announced that they're at least exploring name changes. So what we're going to do is grade some new name ideas for each team. Now we'll start with the Washington Redskins and the owner is said to favor the Washington Warriors as the new name. What do you think of that one, Dave? Well, I'm not a fan of, of Warriors. I, I mean, when I heard about this name change thing, I, I thought I, two, two good names came to mind. Um, the first is, is, is nice, Peacemakers. That's probably the antithesis of, of Warriors. But the second is the reason why perhaps there will never be peace um, in Washington, D.C., and that is that uh, it is a swamp, and it's filled with rats. So how about the swamp rats? <laughs> the, the Washington swamp rats. So you know, what, are, what are the odds? What are the Vegas odds that the Washington uh, swamp rats – yeah, I don't know name. if that one's on the list. I mean, it, it does seem to fit pretty well. I can kind of picture the logo. Uh, that could be very attractive. So there could be uh, a groundswell for that. Actually, the, the names that are popping up are mostly political ones. You've got presidents, generals, Lincolns, Americans, kings, memorials, capitals. Of course, we already have a hockey team with that name. Veterans, Jeffersons, Roosevelt's. I mean, it seems like a pretty political list. Feels like a little bit like you're jumping out of the frying pan into the fire. And we've already got the first name, Washington. Um, anything you like on that list, if you don't like the Warriors? Well, of course, we've spent a lot of time with Washington. You can't, can't call them Washington, Washingtonians. Uh, Lincolns would be good. I, I think maybe uh, best on that list, uh, Americans, right? We, we're really um, yearning for an embrace of a unifying American theme. And, and we'd love that to come out of, of Washington, D.C. So, Okay. All right. So Warriors, what grade are you going to give the Warriors? C minus. C minus. Yeah, I'm not a huge fan of that. I mean, everyone's going to think Golden State Warriors anyway. 
Uh, yeah, Americans on that list is good. How about the museums? I mean, what's distinctive that's positive about Washington, D.C.? A lot of good museums there, the Smithsonian's, you know? So I think they may not go with our choices here, but we've got some positive options. We've got some more true-to-life options with the Swamp Rats. Uh, we'll see where it lands. Sounds like maybe sooner than later we're going to get a decision out of Washington. All right, well, we've got to turn to Cleveland now. And I'm going to give you the top eight options according to at least one site that's taking betting action on this. You know, you can bet on anything apparently these days. I'm not a better myself, but it does often give you a sense of where things are going. So we've got the spiders, which you may know. It was the 19th century name for their National League team when there was a Cleveland National League team. There's the Naps, which was the name that the Indians went by before they were the Indians in honor of their great Hall of Fame captain player, Nap Lajouet. Uh, the Guardians, in honor of the eight statues that guard the most famous bridge in Cleveland. The Buckeyes, obviously Ohio State reference there, broader Ohio reference, but also that was the nickname of Cleveland's Negro League team. Uh, back in the 40s. The Dobies, in honor of Larry Doby, who was the first black player in the American League, Hall of Famer, Cleveland Indians player back in 1947 and beyond. The Wild Things, a little pop culture reference there. Remember Major League? Uh, not sure you want to go with the Charlie Sheen connection uh, at, at this point, but that's also on the list. The Blue Sox, which was uh, at least connected to the original nickname of the American League Cleveland team, which was called the Blues because they wore blue uniforms. And then the Rocks, the last on the list that I'm giving you anyway, obviously in honor of Cleveland's role in the history of rock and roll, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame being in Cleveland. Any any A's on that list, Dave? I like the last one. I, I, I think I'd go with Rock and Rollers. I know you didn't use that name, but I, I think anything that uh, Rock and Roll is something that unites us, right? Uh, and we need that uh, unity right now. And that's a, a great element of, of, of Cleveland, uh, the fact that it has that Hall of Fame. So I'm going to go with the Cleveland Rock and Rollers. Okay, good. Yeah, I, I think if I had to choose, I'm, I'm between the Spiders and the Guardians. If you look up those statues, they're pretty cool. And, you know, you kind of get this sense of, there's, there's a lot of kind of local culture and pride around that. And then spiders. I mean, you can't really beat that. Who, whose team is called the spiders, but you got the history there. Um, you know, something kind of intimidating and, and creepy about spiders, which might suit Cleveland, you know, as, as a city. I mean, Cleveland honestly is not what I think about as a, as a town that has great sports names. Cleveland Browns uh, kind of bland and the Cavaliers. Uh, I mean, what is that? Is that a reference to the English Civil War? Uh, in which case, why aren't they the roundheads? You know, you just real... you're you're wiping out our Ohio listening base right now. The, no, well, the of, okay, yeah, we've had at least two people from Cleveland listen to this show. Yeah, and, well, and I, that... I I'm praising the Guardians. I'm all for the Guardians and the Spiders, but I I'm not sure about Browns and Cavaliers. So I think I think you got to aim high here because I think the overall kind of collective value of Cleveland sports names is. Is, is kind of middling, you know, it's kind of C minus right now with Browns and Cavaliers. So they need to kind of hit it out of the park. They need, they need one that really strikes a chord with the people of Cleveland and, and strikes fear in those that would oppose them. All right. Well, our last segment as always is the Tocqueville's crystal ball. 
And as we do each week, Dave and I will make a prediction. And whoever is closest to the mark or who gets the prediction right gets to set the terms for the next week's crystal ball. Last week, our challenge was the Coney Island hot dog eating contest. The question was simple. Would Joey Chestnut repeat as champion for the 13th time in 14 years? And if so, how many hot dogs would he consume? We both thought he would win. Dave said 76 hot dogs in the spirit of 76. I was more pessimistic and said he could only eat 70. As it turns out, Joey was up to Lexington and Concord, but not quite July 4th. He hit 75, a new world record. So Dave, you win last week. What have you got for us this week? It's hard to find something that is week by week, but I, I did find that uh, on Tuesday, the Alabama Republican primary runoff uh, between Tuberville and um, Jeff Sessions uh, will, will take place. And I think it's interesting given um, a lot of our conversation in this podcast has been on, on President Trump and uh, Sessions, of course, was a former attorney general for President Trump. Uh, Tuberville is now backed uh, by President Trump and, and some other organizations. What do you think, Matt? Who do you think is going to win that uh, primary runoff? And, and what would be your margin on, on uh, the two? Well, you gave me a little prior warning on this. So I was able to do some research, uh, your, your classic seven minutes of research. And of course, the first thing I looked for was polling numbers. But this being a Republican primary in Alabama, there are not polling numbers, uh, at least not since March. Uh, so the first poll that was done right after the initial primary, Tuberville was up by 20 points. There's been a number of people that have released internal polls since, and you know how internal polls work. There's usually a story that's meant to be told by those. So I don't really have any idea where the polling is, but I'm going to say Tuberville does win, but I think it's going to be surprisingly close, at least compared to that 20-point margin. So I'm going to say Tuberville wins by six points. Okay. I think that Sessions pulls off a surprise. It, it may not be decided on Tuesday, so it'll probably be counted thereafter. But I think Sessions takes this by the slimmest of margins. So probably something that's, that uh, the count will be, uh, recount will be made. But three or four weeks from now, uh, Jeff Sessions will once again be U.S. Senator. Uh, for, well, he won't, won't be Senator right away, but once he wins the general election, which uh, in all likelihood he will in Alabama, he will once again become U.S. Senator from Alabama. All right. So we've got both sides of this one. There's not going to be a tie this time around. And we'll see how President Trump reacts on Tuesday night and beyond. Well, that's it for this week. Thanks, everybody, for joining us as always. We're glad to have you listening and love to have you subscribe and review the podcast at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. Take care. We look forward to talking to you again next week.